Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from our wrap-up episode for last week's Fourth Global Nash Congress. This conversation focuses on how treatment paradigms and guidelines might evolve over the next few years. One key topic involved future prospects for precision medicine versus less expensive options. Another was how evolution in the U.S. might differ from countries with tighter government controls on healthcare costs. Six of the seven people who participated in our coverage had things to say about this topic. Each one makes an appearance in this abbreviated recording. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the conversation on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Last week, close to 175 stakeholders from across the global fatty liver community convened to hear 43 speakers address a range of NASH and NAFLD issues at the 4th Global NASH Conference. Join hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders Professor Manal Abdelmalik, Drs. Naeem Alkuri and Ian Rowe, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and GenFit Global Diagnostics leader Sunil Hosmain as they review key issues and concepts that emerged from the Congress today on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. I'm going to ask Louise and Ian to act like you work in a more resource-constrained healthcare system than Naeem and Manal do, because you do. And I'm going to ask each of you as a group, the UK versus the US, and Sunil and I will moderate or throw or throw bombs as we choose to talk about how you think this will actually play out in your system and what's going to have to happen for it to have a real effect. Let me ask Louise and Ian to go first on that. I think it's very difficult. We're very driven by evidence and cost effectivity. We're driven by NICE and review systems that decide a way, but a lot of it is still very siloed. There have been recent pathways for behavior change that have looked at alcohol, that have looked at obesity, but not one of them linked to into the NAFLD pathway. And when I raised the question of it was a missed opportunity because it was all about non-invasive technologies to look for liver disease, I was basically told that actually there's a NAFLD pathway, stick to the NAFLD pathway. But where we don't interlink it, we don't use the best opportunities to look at these patients. We spend more money in the long run. We don't resource the right areas because we're still fairly siloed. But I think just picking up what Manal and Naeem were saying there, I think if we look at breath tests and due And I know we have biomarkers currently, but we have a really big inequality in who accesses trials. We don't see people with disabilities accessing many trials. It's very difficult to biopsy somebody who's disabled and in a wheelchair. It's not the easiest thing to fibro scan, but those tests open up an equity to so many more and so much more of the populations that are affected the more we go non-invasive. There are massive opportunities, but are we going to grab them and make them the best? I'm not too sure in our system. Not the same as the VAs do that was discussed at um, the meeting, for example. They get access to a lot and they drive a lot of information. I love listening to their stuff because we don't have that here. Ian, do me a favor. Try to vision a path by which we get there from here. To get there from here. So we to try and work out how it's how it would play in the UK, we'd need three 
critical pieces of information. I think there's work to do on each of those. So the first is about patient selection and about absolute risk of complications. And we talked a bit on Thursday night about using non-invasive testing to quantify risk across a scale rather than using biopsy outcomes. We might come back to that. But understanding the absolute risk of complications will allow you to understand what benefit you'll get with a therapy. But the other piece of information that you need to calculate that is the actual efficacy of treatment and not efficacy against surrogates, but efficacy against clinical endpoints, because that ultimately will tell you how many life years you'll gain with therapy. There's also a sort of sub-question about quality of life because that will play into the calculation of cost effectiveness. Once you've got all of that information, then the companies will know how they'll be able to price their drugs in the UK so that there'll be able to be some uptake. So if we had a very, very effective drug, a bit like a DAA, which I don't think is quite where we are yet, I guess we're more like, you know, probably more in the sort of interferon, perhaps with ribavirin type arena. Those drugs, if they're used in populations who've got significant risk of liver-related death, meaning patients with cirrhosis or maybe F3, then that'll be something that might be cost effective, probably depending on the price then. To get to a point, if we were going to treat earlier in disease with lower absolute risks, either drugs have to be very, very, very effective, which I think will take probably multiple drugs because it's a multiple pathway disease. It's not like, you know, a single virus etiology. So probably multiple diseases, uh, multiple drugs. In all reality, for the UK, where cost effectiveness is king, because that's how the market is governed, those drugs are going to have to be quite cheap. And, you know, in that early stage disease, it's like primary prevention. It's lots of treatment that's effective in the population, but it's also cheap so that you get all of the benefit across the population, but you don't break the bank in doing it. There's a real tension in trying to think about the development of personalized therapies in a disease that is highly prevalent because it's a bit like going to your favorite boutique to buy your clothes when actually what you need is cheap high street clothing for the masses. And until at least for the UK, until that sort of tension is resolved to some extent, we're going to be stuck, I think, both conceptualizing treatment, but also companies might be stuck when they come here uh, to think about how treatment might actually work and be a bit surprised by what the market really looks like. Thanks. Those are both great answers. Naeem, Manal, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to throw a wet blanket, but now I'd like you to come back and talk a little bit about how you see all this evolving in the States and where you see there being possible transferability. I agree on several levels with what Ian has said. I mean, if you think about it, all of the excitement, need around precision diagnostics and, and precision therapeutics, but particularly precision diagnostics, is all going to be driven about their content of use. If we have therapies that are highly, highly effective, but yet carry with them concerns for safety signals or high health economic burden, there's going to be an absolute need for precision diagnostics. However, if you're to change that paradigm where you have a highly effective therapeutic target and it is incredibly cost effective with no side effects or risk, then who cares about precision diagnostics? Everybody should get access to a therapeutic without the precision diagnostics that is carrying us any farther than metabolic risk, obesity, fat on ultrasound and liver enzymes. The need for precision diagnostics really depends on the scope and content of use for which the therapeutics is going to sit. If an aspirin a day keeps the doctor away and an aspirin is incredibly cheap and prevents you from having your stroke and your heart disease and even potentially even cancer, then 
And maybe there's a precision diagnostic to see if somebody needs an aspirin, maybe aspirin a day. But you know, that risk benefit ratio completely flips if you're dealing with something like cancer oncology drugs, where you need exquisite genomic signatures for the disease to be able to tailor therapies effectively to get a efficacy benefit for which drugs either have high cost and, and a higher safety profile. And I see the landscape of precision diagnostics with chronic liver disease and, and fatty liver disease for which there are many integrated pathways and very heterogeneous outcomes being no different than what I've just defined for you, aspirin versus high-risk, high-cost therapies for which precision is incredibly necessary. So I really think to discuss precision diagnostics, the unfortunate yet the fortunate reality is both the therapeutics and the diagnostic pathways are happening in parallel, but we don't know what's going to be at the end of the race and whether there's going to be need for that level of precision diagnostics. It's ultimately going to be, in my opinion, dependent on the drug and the health economic risk profile of such a drug as to how the diagnostic space will unfold. It's an, it's an interesting conversation. Some of it we won't know until we have data. You know, for example, like oncology was not like that today. It was not like that, you know, 20 years ago. It was, I kill everything in your body. I kill some things faster than others and, and that's good enough and, and that's first-line therapy. And then it, once we understood more, we unpacked the science, which means you had good trials and you start to uncover. Now you have microsatellite instabilities and MEK inhibitors and all this stuff and that didn't come out overnight. That, that evolved. So, you know, will Nash evolve to that? I don't know. So far, I don't think anything is, has given us a clear signal that that's there. But we also don't know as much about that disease and you kind of won't know as much until you start routinely diagnosing people and, and you have a larger data set that's driving your insights. Today, it's I think it's a widespread population. I don't think there's anything that tells us precision diagnostics are needed. But I also don't think we know as much about the disease. This is a hot topic, right? But I think we can discuss it on uh, multiple levels. If we take it back to genetics and polymorphisms, something like PMPLA3, which we talked about, there's an interaction between between the polymorphism and environmental factors in diet. There was a paper by Helen Hobbs and the group at UT Southwestern showing that if you maintain your BMI less than 25, even if you're homozygote for PMPLA3, you're not going to accumulate a lot of fat in the liver. As the BMI category goes up, you accumulate more and more fat with the same genetic polymorphism. Obviously, what Ian and Louise are saying in terms of targeting the population and healthy lifestyle, I think this is a first step in any intervention. But can we potentially in a family where, you know, two or three people already died from NASH cirrhosis or needed liver transplant, can we maybe run a genetic panel and see if we can identify PMPLA3 as a contributing factor if we have a drug that can silence PMPLA3, target them with this potentially, you know, for some more complex cases. If we have medications that are powerful antifibrotics and we have patients with cirrhosis, even if they're, you know, antisense oligonucleotides or short interfering RNA, can we utilize them in the tip of the iceberg, which is patients with very advanced fibrosis? I think there is an opportunity there. Again, on a population level, from a cost effectiveness, this is probably not the way to go, but we will have challenging cases where probably you need a little bit more precision. The other area is uh, to try to find, you know, what is the main pathway driving 
preventing the disease. So, you know, naturally, you have so many pathways similar to IBD, right, Crohn's disease. But you have these major pathways like the TNF pathway in Crohn's disease and had several now TNF inhibitors that really made an impact. Can we identify in each patient what pathway is the major driver? And then if we have selective drugs targeted, can we actually look at some baseline predictors of response? So if I'm going to use an FGF21 versus an FGF19 versus a resmitarum, is there anything I can measure at baseline that will tell me that probably you should go with this medicine first because you're more likely to show efficacy? I think we will get to that point. So many things to discuss. I think medicine in general is, you know, proceeding toward precision medicine. The cost is coming down for genetic testing. And I think even drug discovery and being more targeted against a specific gene is becoming more and more feasible. Eventually, we'll get there. But I think, you know, we have to think about NAFO. Is it going to be like type 2 diabetes management or is it going to be like cancer management? Type 2 diabetes, we're not doing a lot of with precision medicine now. Cancer, I think we are there. So we'll see how things evolve. But historically speaking, as you can generate data cheaper and cheaper and you have medications that can be more selective, I think we will get there at some point. So the question is when. I'm thinking of a couple of commercial and economic issues. Number one, as night follows day, highly precise medicines lead to highly costly medicines. Nobody has yet made the decision not to do that. Okay. And part of the reason is when you say, is this like type 2 diabetes or is it like cancer? Type 2 diabetes is treated with less urgency and for more population. So, and I think NAFLs will look like that. If we look at what precision medicine can bring to the economics of disease, some patients are going to be a lot more expensive than others. Fast progressors will be more expensive. Patients with a high propensity to come quickly to HCC will be more expensive. If precision medicine tells us which patients are at risk of imminent demise, and by the way, along with that imminent cost, then you start to figure out in a hurry, what do I want to do to treat the people who need the most help the fastest? I'm not sure that's how the commercial equation is going to go, though. I don't have a window into it. In fact, of the six people on this line right now, I might have the least of a window into it, and I'm certainly not in the top three. So I'm I'm kind of interested in that. For the next 10 years, Roger, it's going to look like the management of type 2 diabetes. I have no doubt in mind that uh, this is the route we're going. After that, who knows what discoveries we make, what medications we have. We may change the way we approach these patients, but for now, it's going to look like the management of diabetes. I've got a thought on what Manel was saying about aspirin. In the here and now, we know that we're targeting F3, F4, because that's where the highest mortality lies. But maybe Manel is right. Maybe we need to locate and prevent the fatty builder right at the beginning. A simple, well, none of these drugs are simple, but a medication that keeps the liver fat low for those who can't use or don't respond to exercise diet and some of the metabolic responses. If you talk about the masses, we've got 16.4 million people here in the UK. There's 100 million in the US. If you talk cheap as chips, but mass volume, the prevention of long-term NAFLD and NASH particularly becomes a reality. If you develop, maybe simple steatosis is the target for the aspirin type medication to prevent the F3, F4 long term. We need to look at both scenarios. This is where it comes back to absolute risk. So, you know, I'm uh, the wrong side of 40, although for those, no, nobody's actually met me except by video, so they can't tell that. There's, there's a, the simple fact is that my, my risk of coronary heart disease event in the next decade is, I hope, quite low, less than a couple of percent over the course of the next 10 years. But I wouldn't take an aspirin a day based on that risk because there is a, there is a non-negligible risk of anemia upper GI bleeding and a few other nasty things that I prefer not to have. And for patients who've got 
steatosis only, whilst that's not benign in terms of its risks of future development of diabetes and perhaps development of other metabolic comorbidities, the absolute risk is not sufficient to justify either the potential risks of a new and unproven therapy in long-term treatment and indeed the costs. And this is where it comes back to, if you're going to have a drug that's going to work in F1, F2, think statin, not DAA. Think pennies, not hundreds of dollars. Only once you get into cirrhosis is the absolute risk of liver-related events sufficiently high that we're going to be in the realms of a, you know, of a, of a even moderately costly therapy, at least in the, at least in the cost-restrained NHS. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com or join the discussion on our uh, LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. We'll be back next week with a new episode and fresh content. Hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.